Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Straight Talk with Celine. God's redemption over my life has led to many radical changes in me. One gift God has given me is a hunger for his word and a passion to share it with you. The Bible tells us all we need to know about God, but it also tells us all we need to know about ourselves, and we fail to open it and learn these great truths. A burden that weighs heavy on me is that many professing Christians don't know their identity in Christ. So join me now as we walk through God's word and learn who we are in Christ so we can step into all he's called us to be. Welcome back to Straight Talk with Celine, episode four of this Acts of the Holy Spirit series. So far this season, we've spent time introducing the book of Acts and looked at how those early disciples carried the responsibility of starting this movement called Christianity that would really carry on for the last 2,000 years. The church was established the day that Jesus ascended to heaven. We walked through Acts 1 and, and we got a real understanding of what happened once the disciples of Jesus left the Mount of Olives and returned to Jerusalem as, as they were commanded to wait for the Holy Spirit. The 120, they gathered together continually. They all met together and were constantly united in prayer. They, they had their first church business meeting. And the main order of business was to appoint uh, a new disciple or a, a new apostle as the 11 were officially called at this point. The early church, they, they did what they were commanded to do. They opened the Old Testament scriptures. They, they prayed. Um, they sought God's guidance. They got organized. They prepared. And then last week we saw in Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, where the Holy Spirit came. And, and this was by God's design to inaugurate the birth of the church. Guys, we are the church. This, this is our story. This is our history. We see through the lens of the holy book, the birth of the church. In Acts 1, the disciples were waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, he arrives. In Acts 1, the disciples were equipped for their ministry. In Acts 2, the disciples are empowered for their ministry. In Acts 1, the disciples are held back and made to wait. In Acts 2, the disciples are sent out. And Peter immediately preaches his first sermon and the Holy Spirit convicts 3,000 hearts. And the church went from a group of 120 to 3,120 in one day. And today we begin episode four, uh, picking up where we left off last week. And I mentioned last week that up to this point, we've been crawling slowly through the first three weeks and we have purposely done this to establish really a foundational understanding of the first few chapters of Acts so that we can properly understand the rest of the book. And I want to start by looking at Acts 2.43, the day the church was born. It says, and awe, or in other word, fear, came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That the miracles that were common in the ministry of our Lord and and the delegated power to do miracles that he granted to his apostles were, were still going on. Jesus had ascended by this time into heaven. The, the apostles obviously were still there and they were doing miracles to validate themselves as the messengers of God. And one of those amazing miracles happens in Acts 3. And we're going to touch on it today. But first, we need to understand that in the ancient world, there were teachers running around everywhere. Rabbis and scribes. Pharisees and, and many others who were teachers. And how would you know the true teachers? 
How would you know who, who spoke for God? Well, based on the Bible, the, the true teacher is manifest by miracle power. You remember what Nicodemus said to Jesus back in John 3, 2? It was, it was Nicodemus who said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that has come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. It was the signs that showed that God was with Jesus, and, and the signs were the evidence and the validation of who Jesus was. So when the early apostles came on the scene and they began preaching the kingdom and teaching, these miracles they performed were very important because they validated the apostles as the true teachers. This power gave the apostles legitimacy. It was, it was proof of their connection to God. And not only here, but this phenomena took place all throughout the book of Acts. In Acts 4, the believers all prayed for boldness that God would heal through them in the name of Jesus to further validate who they represented. In Acts 5, the apostles are hanging in, in Solomon's portico, the same place they healed the crippled beggar. Many signs and wonders were taking place at their hands. It says, none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem and more believers were added to the church because of this. People were carrying the sick out into the street and laying them on cots so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on, on any one of them. People were coming together, uh, bringing people who were sick and afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. The, the apostles knew that their job was to preach the word, to proclaim the word of God, but they knew in order to validate what they said, there had to be some divine signals or signs or wonders. And these signals, these signs and wonders were that validation. And because of these miracles and wonders, even many of the religious leaders were coming to faith as well. That is how convincing the miracles were to demonstrate these apostles were teachers of God. And everywhere these apostles went, whether it was going to lay hands on the Gentile converts or going to Samaria, the Holy Spirit spilled off of them onto others. And they were so filled with the Holy Spirit that this move of God was, it was beyond powerful. But God granted this amazing ability in order to validate their message. That is the bottom line. And I also must note that, that only two other people outside of the apostles perform miracles in the entire New Testament, Stephen and Barnabas. And we don't know what signs and wonders were performed for the word says they perform miracles and signs among the people. And why do I even bring this up? Well, here's why. The apostles did miracles and the only ones beyond the apostles were those tightly connected to them. When the apostles were not present, no miracles occurred. There is no occasion in the New Testament of a miracle occurring without an apostle present. And the reason, the reason I share this is because it is important for us to understand this today. That there are so many people running around today claiming miracles, and there are no apostles present. The, the only apostles in the history of the church were the apostles at the foundation of the church. But there were only 12, minus Judas, Add Matthias, and then Paul. And I know right now, many might hear me saying this, and they probably find this offensive. And I don't want to argue this. And I know the proof text that is probably going through your mind is John 14, 12. It was Jesus who said, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. So here's my stance. I truly believe God can do whatever he wants and he will work miracles when he wants. And he may work miracles through you and others. 
But, but here's the reality that we need to understand. Miracles and wonders are rare in church history. And how rare are they? Well, there are no healings referred to in any New Testament church. Go, go read the epistles. Go, go read the letters written by the apostles to the churches. There is zero record or mention in the entire New Testament of anybody in the church being healed. Zero instruction given to the church about healing. In the book of Acts, in the letters, in the epistles, you read about believers being sick. Sick unto death. And so what this tells me is followers of Christ were getting sick and dying just like they do today. And so this leads me to believe that healing was not a gift to believers to make them better. It was a sign to non-believers to convince them to believe the message of the gospel. And after the book of Acts, there are no more healings. In fact, they slowly fade away as the book of Acts unfolds. There may have been healings, but they weren't written about after the book of Acts. And so with that understood, let's go back to Acts 3 where Peter heals this crippled beggar. And let, let's look at the story and see how it unfolds. Acts 3, 1 through 11, it lays out the story. P Peter and John were, were going up to the temple to take part in the, in the three o'clock prayer service. And we must understand that Peter and John were really good friends. It's highly likely that they had been friends since childhood. I mean, they were from two different families, but Luke 5 tells us they were in the fishing business together. That They represented a very interesting partnership. Together, they prepared the Last Supper. They hung out together. They, they were the first disciples that ran to the empty tomb. They were the confident ones. And we need to grasp that Peter and John were part of the inner circle of Jesus, the third being James, the brother of John, also nicknamed by Jesus as the sons of thunder. Peter and John were close, and they were now partners in ministry. They, they were partners in persecution, as we will see in Acts 4 and 5. They, they were a dynamic duo. And I think it's important to point out that in every case of them speaking to the crowds, Peter was the main speaker. Peter was the preacher. He, he was the, the chosen instrument to preach the gospel to the Jews. And he does this through the first part of the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1 through 12 is all about Peter's ministry. And I want to point out that Peter and John had a, a normal daily habit that had been formed early on in their lives. They, they would go up to the temple at the ninth hour, which was 3 p.m., and all the followers of Jesus hung at the temple all the time. I mean, look how Luke ends his gospel. He says that the church was continually in the temple. According to scripture, they were there all the time. Remember, that, guys, that there was no physical building. That there was a spiritual body of people coming together day by day in the temple and in homes and in the community praising and worshiping God. This was the early church. This is why I'm perplexed when I look at how we do church now. Absolutely opposite of what I see in scripture. But that that's that's a completely different episode. Uh, that's a completely different sermon. So Peter and John were heading into the temple as part of the daily habit of any devout Jew. That they were heading in for the 3 p.m. prayer service and also the temple sacrifices. The church was still partaking in this routine because it was all they knew for their entire life and leaving this ritual was going to take time. I mean, it's safe to say that there was heavy traffic at this time of day. There were a ton of people heading in. And you have to remember that at this point, not only were there devout Jews coming in to pray and offer sacrifices, but there was a church of over 3,000 people. So, so just picture this right now. There was a massive amount of people. Thousands and thousands of people were pouring in. And as Peter and John approached the temple, 
that they passed the beautiful gate, which was above the Kidron Valley on the east side of the wall that surrounds the temple. The beautiful gate was the largest and the most astonishing in all of Jerusalem. It was approximately 75 feet high by 60 feet wide. And apparently it took 20 men to open and close it. It was made of, of Corinthian brass adorned with thick, rich plates of gold. I mean, this was the, the most popular way into the temple because everyone wanted to walk through this gate. So as Peter and John come in from that side through the beautiful gate, they encounter a very familiar face that they saw every single day they came through this beautiful gate. A man lame from birth who had been placed there for one specific purpose, to beg for cash. And this was the best spot to be. I mean, think about this. You had guilty sinners walking through the gate to pray and, and, and give just to be released from the guilt and the shame, only to do it all over again tomorrow. I mean, this was the Jewish way. So I'm sure this man received a lot of cash at this spot. And when this man saw Peter and John, he did what he did with everyone. He, he was begging them for money. He, he wanted cash from them like he gets from everybody else. I mean, this is the setting. So guys, visualize it as this miracle unfolds here in Acts 3, 4 through 8. And as this man is begging them for money, Peter and John fixed their eyes on him. They focused right in on him and said, look at us. And I'm sure that they said this with authority. And this was the type of authority that would have gotten the attention of this beggar in a real way. So the beggar looks up at them expecting one thing, the cash, which is what he gets from all guilt-ridden sinners walking into the temple. But Peter says to him, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And this lame beggar looked for money and instead he was miraculously healed and it was instant. Now, there are four elements to this miracle that, that I want to point out. First, the miracle was unexpected. This man wasn't crying out for a miracle. This is a man who wanted some money. So, so it's clear that God sovereignly selects this man. And with all the people moving about, all the lame people present in this place, and God selects this man. And the Holy Spirit leads Peter and John to focus in on this man. Understand that they had passed by this man many times. Guys, I'm sure Jesus passed by this man many times. This guy had been lame all his life and had been at this gate every day. This miracle was sovereign. It was unexpected. Guys, God's grace transcended all his expectations. Peter had no money to offer, but he did have delegated power to heal. And this is what God did through Peter. As I just mentioned, it, it was an apostolic gift to confirm the truth he taught. Second, it was in the name of Jesus Christ. This miracle was for the purpose of connecting this man to Jesus. Peter was saying a few things. Peter was saying, by the virtue of the authority and power of Jesus delegated to me, I say to you, walk. Peter says to, the, to, says to this man, get up and walk in the name of Jesus. And he's saying, essentially, if Jesus were here, this is what he would do. Peter is calling the attention of this man to Jesus. It wasn't about money, silver or gold. It wasn't about anything temporal. Miracles were done to point people to Jesus Christ, whom they preached and whom they represented. And this was what was happening here. Third, it's instantaneous. Notice in Acts 3, 7 through 8, it says, And he took him by the right hand and raised him up, and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. 
And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. First of all, guys, understand something. This man has never walked in his entire life. Understand that. You, you don't just get up and start walking, okay? You have to learn how to walk. You have to build muscle. You have to be trained. It's like telling a baby to get up and walk. That's not happening. But this was a miracle and there was no need for any of this. God made this happen and it happened in an instant. He went from lame to walking and leaping in a split second. Fourth, it was complete. Why was it complete? Well, because Acts 3.8 says he leaped, which means his muscles were strong. He, he literally came right up out of his sitting position and began to walk. And when he entered the temple, it says he was leaping. So here's a checklist for a miracle. It was a sovereign work of God to demonstrate that those who displayed that power came from God. And if they came from God, then the message they preached was God's message. And if the miracle was sovereign, it was supernatural. It was sudden. It was sufficient. It had one purpose. It was drawing a crowd to do what? To hear and believe a message. Guys, the crowd that witnessed this was amazed. They were perplexed. And they came to see what and how this had happened. And Acts 3.12 tells us what happens next. When Peter saw his opportunity, he stood up and addressed the crowd. In other words, he began to preach the gospel. God had provided an introduction and Peter stepped up and took complete advantage. And Acts 3.12-16 tells us what he said. It says, And when Peter saw the crowds, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us? as though by our own power, we have made him walk. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God, whom God raised from dead. To this we are witnesses and his name by faith in his name has made this man strong whom you see and know in the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So it's clear that Peter is preaching Christ. This was the theme of all preaching in the book of Acts. It started with Jesus and it ended with Jesus. And this is what the early church did, even when they were told not to. The early preachers and the faithful preachers throughout history and to this very day preach Jesus, period. So, so many preachers now have to use gimmicky tactics and humor and their charisma when the recipe is simple. Preach Christ and him crucified. Preach the book. Preach the glories and the themes of Jesus. Preach the stories in the Bible, but always center them around Jesus because he's the center of all things. How can you identify a faithful preacher? He will always be preaching Christ. Anyone who doesn't preach Christ is an antichrist and is unfaithful. And this concept was started by the New Testament apostolic preachers. This started on the day of Pentecost and carried forward through the entire New Testament. Guys, this is why I'm so bugged by what, I, by, what, by what I see in our culture today. What is our Christian culture even doing? Guys, we look nothing like the early church. Look guys, preaching Jesus is vital. His name is mentioned over 800 times in the New Testament. That is his most common name in the New Testament. 
But there are nearly 200 different names or titles for Jesus in the scriptures. And the reason for this is because this allows us to explore all the facets of his majestic glory. But bottom line here is this, by any name, by any description, Jesus is the subject of all things. And here Peter was making it very clear to this crowd that Jesus was central and Peter said some very bold things. He, he spoke boldly, even in the presence of the ones who had Jesus murdered about a few months prior to this moment. So, so let's briefly break down how Peter addressed this crowd. Notice he poses two questions to this crowd. We know his target audience is the Jews because he addresses them as men of Israel. That, that's generic for men and women of Israel. The first question he asked them was why they were so amazed at what they were seeing as this once lame man was now standing in front of them. And the second question he asked them was why they were there staring at Peter and John because it wasn't their power that healed this man. So it was clear that Peter isn't answering questions. He's asking questions. And the purpose of his questions was to engage their minds. He, he's basically asking them why they're standing there in amazement, staring at them like they had done this miracle when they knew God's power from the Old Testament. He, he reminds them of God's power exhibited through the person of Jesus. P Peter performed the miracle in the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene. So, so it's clear that, that it was the power of God. And this crowd had seen the power of Jesus right there in their own cities again and again and again. And they all knew that God could only do something so miraculous. Guys, miracles aren't done by people. And the miracle that was just done was done by a Galilean fisherman. So what Peter was just saying to them was, you, you know that people don't have the power to create what, what, what you've just seen. So the questions remain, why are you so amazed? And why are you standing here looking at us like we did this? And with these questions, Peter places them in a, a major dilemma. Only God can create. Only he can do the supernatural. They all know this. They've been around a long time. They'd seen miracles, uh, you know, through, through Jesus. But prior to that, they'd seen no miracles. So understand, they, they'd seen no miracles in their lifetime until Jesus showed up and they all witnessed his miracles. So now a couple of his disciples who had been with him for years were now in the temple healing this lame man. What was Peter trying to make clear to them? That God is here operating in the power of Jesus Christ, which of course implies Jesus is alive and is operating through Peter. So the miracle draws the crowd. The question in people's minds are, where did this power come from? And Peter here reinforces that this power can only come from God and it comes from God through the name of Jesus in order to glorify Jesus. We need to understand that for Jesus' three-year ministry, God glorified his son by miracles, but by the display of creative power, power over demons, power over nature, power over disease, power over sin, power over death. And so now we've moved from the miracle to God being the source, to Christ through whom God pours his glory. So now as we come to Acts 3, 13 through 26, and the rest of the sermon Peter preaches here, the theme is going to be Jesus Christ. The sermon breaks into two parts. The first part, the people are moved to guilt. And then the second part, the people are moved by grace. And Peter does not hold back as he indicts this crowd. He, he is like a, a prosecuting attorney. And he lays an indictment with no hesitation. And we need to remember Jesus' worst enemies, the high priest, uh, the religious leaders, 
were sprinkled all throughout this crowd. They were hearing this message. That the very men that, that had Jesus murdered. And here was Peter's indictment. Israel murdered the Messiah. You have slain the Son of God. That's the indictment. It is unmistakable when you read the text. Peter boldface said the following. Jesus, the one who you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pontius Pilate when he had decided to let him go. And let me remind you that Pilate pronounced Jesus not guilty six times in the gospel narratives. But it was the Jews who blackmailed Pilate into crucifying him. He goes on to say, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be released instead of him and asked for Jesus to be put to death. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from death. And we were all witnesses to this. Guys, Peter essentially told all these people that they denied God, had him killed and had blood on their hands. You look at Matthew 27, 24 through 26, it says, So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather a riot was beginning, he took the water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I'm innocent of this man's blood. See to it to yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. And then Pilate released them from, from, uh, released for them Barabbas. And having scour scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. They were guilty. It isn't the Romans who, who are indicted here. The people of Israel are the ones who are indicted. And this is the same thing that Peter said in his first message that we walked through last week. That the boldness of Peter to stand up in front of thousands of people, many who had the power to flog and imprison him and even have him put to death was really amazing. The same Peter that was hiding the weekend of Jesus's death is now standing boldly in front of all these people telling them that they murdered God and had blood on their hands. And this is why I can't understand why preachers today are so afraid to speak truth because this is what the early apostles did. They did this time and time again, and they didn't care about the repercussions that they knew truth and they shared it without compromise. P Peter wasn't here trying to win people over. He was trying to win souls and he's here giving us the recipe. He, he's, he's breaking down how the gospel and sermons are to be preached. No fluff, no sugar, just pure truth from scripture. And right here, we see it clear that Peter had zero concern about what these people would think of him. So Peter drives home the horrendous guilt. And then he tells them, this is so serious because he's alive again. The one they murdered is alive. And he's putting his power on display. And it is his power poured through Peter and John because of their faith in him that had given this lame man perfect health. That's the indictment. It's inescapable. At this point, they had nowhere to turn. They, had, they, they know what they had done. Peter laid out the facts and they were, they were just cornered, guys. They were cornered with truth and they had, they had to respond. And now we turn to, re, to the result of this indictment laid on these people by Peter. Hey friends, did you know the mission behind Broken and Chosen? I once was lost, but Jesus found me and redeemed my life. And since he saved me, he's been teaching me who I am as his follower. I am chosen. I am part of his holy nation. I am a royal priest. I am his special possession. He called me out of darkness and into his light to be a bold proclaimer of his glory. And if you're in Christ, that's your identity too. So follow us on social media to be reminded of who you are in Christ. And subscribe to this podcast for a deep dive through God's word to learn who you are in Christ. And check out our apparel in our shop at brokenandchosen.com to wear 
your identity in Christ. And lastly, if Broken and Chosen is blessing you, would you do us a favor? Would you leave us a review and also tell a friend about us? And and look at what Peter said to this crowd in Acts 3.17. It says, And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. I mean, it's safe to say that Peter probably said this to calm the crowd down. I mean, they had just heard the most frightening message their ears had ever been open to. I mean, what they just heard was, you people took the one, the Son of God, Jesus' Savior, the Holy One, the Righteous One, the Prince of Life, the Son of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you delivered and denied Him and executed Him. And God raised Him from the dead. Guys, that is a frightening reality because if Jesus is now alive, surely He is about to heap judgment and vengeance on these people. And everyone in this crowd is feeling it. And Peter is quick to open up a window for them to see out of the darkness of what they had done. Everyone is there. Devout Jews, temple leaders, scribes, rabbis, Pharisees, Sadducees, the authorities, teachers of the law, all worshipers in Israel. They are all there for evening prayers and sacrifice. This was the busiest time of the day. And they all just heard this terrifying indictment and just had been notified that the one they executed at the hands of the Romans is alive from the dead, raised by God. And these apostles have seen him and are giving testimony. Classic gospel preaching right here. Heavy burden of guilt, an inescapable indictment, horrific fear grips their their hearts. And immediately we go from guilt to grace, grace beyond comprehension. Understand something, guys, we must share the bad news. People must be wounded by the bad news of the gospel. Without the bad news, the good news isn't that good. But when you realize how wretched you really are, all of a sudden, the good news is so very good. God's grace is so good. So Peter gives the crowd the benefit of the doubt by letting them know that they acted in ignorance. It's very reminiscent of when Jesus hung on the cross and said uh, of the mockers and unbelievers that were present. Remember what he said? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yeah, these people on the day Jesus was crucified were blind to truth. These people in the crowd that that Peter was preaching to were blind to truth. People today are walking around with the same blindness. This is why we should have grace for them. People are ignorant to truth. They need their eyes open. And on this day, Peter had just preached a message that pricked their hearts and eyes were open. And now they were moved to a place of guilt and they needed to be saved from it. And guess what, guys? Peter had the answer. Acts 3, 18 through 21 says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. In other words... Peter said God's plan was to send Jesus. It was all over the Old Testament. He came and fulfilled all of what the prophets spoke about. You missed it, but there's hope. Repent of your sinful living and turn to the only one who can save you. And that's Christ. And he will give you salvation. Here Peter gives the crowd five blessings and motivations of why they should repent and come to Jesus. And if you're listening and you're not in Christ, this is five reasons for you uh, to, to repent 
and come to Jesus. Number one, their sins would be forgiven. It was Jesus who paid the price to wipe out their sins. Number two, the kingdom will come. It will be Jesus who will usher in the kingdom. Number three, Jesus will come back. It will be Jesus who will return. Number four, Jesus will come to judge. And this judgment will not be avoided. It will be Jesus who will judge. And the way to avoid this judgment is to turn to him and repent. And number five, and lastly, promises will be realized. Guys, and this is what Peter preached every single time. He, he preached the same message in Acts 2, the sermon we looked at last week. And this preaching produced 3,000 new believers. And here he is today doing it again. And the result, well, Acts 4, 4 tells us what happens. It says, but many of those who had heard the word believed and the number of men came to about 5,000. 5,000 men, guys. This isn't including women and children. Friends, this is huge. But this time around, there's something different that takes place that didn't take place in Acts 2. Here in Acts 4 it is the first persecution of the church. This is Jewish persecution that we see here in the beginning of Acts, but the documented persecution runs throughout the remainder of the book as the Romans begin to take part in it. Bottom line is this, we will see persecution truly escalate to epic proportions as we move forward. And so it's safe to say that, that just as salvations were a part of preaching in the early church, so was major opposition and persecution. Now understand what I'm saying. Authentic gospel preaching led to authentic salvations, but it also led to major opposition and persecution. It did then, and it always has. And guess what, guys? It always will. And I'm not talking about some mocking and jokes. I'm talking about imprisonment. I'm talking about being locked out of the system. I'm talking about floggings and beatings. I'm talking about being tortured. Guys, they were stoned. They, they were being sewed in the skins of animals and then fed to wild dogs. They were drenched in wax and then lit as torches to light parties. They were torn apart. They were seared and burned and boiled. They were hanged and crucified. Guys, they were beheaded. It was awful. It's so hard to even say these words and ever say that I've ever been persecuted in, in, in my walk. I don't know real persecution. Most of you don't know real persecution. Our early Christian brothers and sisters faced severe punishment for following Jesus, and it all started right here in Acts 4. We come to the first persecution in Acts 4, commencing the, the long pattern of satanically inspired hatred of Christ, hatred of the Bible, hatred of the gospel, hatred of Christians, hatred of the church that has reached a point today where, where more than 100 million, at least professing Christians, are currently under physical persecution. And I'm not talking about those who are socially abused or alienated. I'm talking about those that are actually under the threat of bodily harm or death. I'm talking about those who are running for their lives. Guys, and it will always be this way because Satan hates God and Christ and Christians. The kingdom of darkness hates the kingdom of light. And the two will always clash. So this perse persecution, it will always be until Jesus returns. And let me just say something about persecution as it relates to us today. Persecution may be overt, as overt as chopping someone's head off or being blown up by a suicide bomber. But on the flip side, it may be as subtle as just being shunned or alienated. Maybe someone's unwilling to give you respect or give you a job or an academic position or even just social acceptance. 
But I think we in, in America face the latter. But you know what, guys? It has an effect. I think we'd be better off if Christians were, were facing the former because real Christians would stand up in that environment. J Jesus said the time will come when they will imprison you and kill you. But don't worry because when the time comes, you'll know how to react and exactly what to say because the Holy Spirit will show you what to say. See, the truth is true Christians survive the physical persecution, but nominal believers easily crumble under the social alienation. And what is produced is compromise that steals the testimony and weakens the church as it tries to accommodate the hostility of the world. This is what is happening in the West as we speak. I mean, just look at Christians who are unwilling to speak truth in any situation. Meanwhile, our brothers and sisters around the world are literally running for their lives. But in the early church, it was a real physical persecution on top of the alienation. And our first glimpse starts right here in Acts 4 when Peter and John were confronted by the priest, the captain of the temple guard, and some of the Sadducees. As I mentioned, 5,000 men, not including women and children, had just come to faith. At this point, the church was not just a novelty. Now the church is a massive threat to the Jewish system. You can't have 10,000, 15,000, 20,000 people congregating inside the temple courtyard in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, whom the religious establishment had just crucified as an imposter and a false messiah. They couldn't have had that going on in the temple. This was not good for, for the religious establishment. So, so the religious establishment has to react, and they do. Let, let's make sure we're clear here. There are thousands and thousands of believers gathered, and by this mass amount of people believing, they are essentially condemning the Jewish leaders that executed Jesus, and they're condemning them in their own temple. I mean, this truly is a stunning fact that we need to grasp and picture. Guys, it's a big deal. And this is the very point that launches 2,000 years of hatred and hostility and persecution. This very moment right here. So we have the priests, the ones who officiated all the temple sacrifices. We have the captain of the temple guard, which was the, the head of the Roman police. And understand that Roman, uh, the, the Roman uh, uh, government demanded order. So the Roman police, they, they weren't nice. Okay, they, 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 were not, they weren't nice. You, you, you fell out of line and, and they would brutalize you. So we need to understand for context how fearful the people were of them. And then there were the Sadducees. They, they were the minority religious party who ran the entire uh, temple operation. The priests worked under their leadership. And they only believed the five books of Moses. They, they, they only believed them as, the, as the, the, the critical books that were actually inspired by God. And the rest of the Old Testament to them was just commentary on the first five books. And since there was nothing about resurrection in there, they didn't believe in the resurrection. So this message that Peter uh, had just preached was insanely offensive to them. And so notice in Acts 4.2, it says this group that approached Peter and John were greatly disturbed. And I would say that's putting it mildly. It's a strong word and it only occurs one other place in the entire Bible. And that's in the book of Acts. It's Acts 16, 18, where it describes Paul's attitude when he saw the woman at Philippi under the power of an evil spirit, and he was greatly disturbed. Paul was troubled, and so was this group of haters that rolled up on Peter and John that day. It was literally profound agitation. Why? Well, number one, they were teaching the people. And why did that bother them? Well, Peter and John were taking the spotlight 
and seizing authority from the so-called teachers. It's like you and me showing up at a Jewish temple with 10,000 followers of Jesus and launching a class on New Testament theology. Guys, it wouldn't go well. We aren't official. We're not welcome. And on this day, they weren't official and they weren't welcome. And here they were preaching a message that condemned the leadership right in front of their face. And it was extremely offensive and they had to put a stop to it. Number two, they were preaching Jesus. I mean, this was a full, open, public rejection of the authority of the entire Sanhedrin because the Sanhedrin had condemned Jesus to death as an imposter. So, so here, the early believers showed their position and it wasn't in their favor. Number three, not only were they preaching Jesus, but that he had risen from death. This was their message. So they're teaching about Jesus and they're saying he had risen from, from the dead and thousands of people are now congregating around listening to this. The word is spreading and people are coming to faith in the droves and the leaders are terrified that they're about to lose their power. So what are they going to do? Well, Acts 4.3 tells us that they laid hands on Peter and John. It says, and they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So Peter and John were roughed up and they were thrown into prison for the night and they submitted to it. They didn't fight back. They didn't resist. And Acts 4, 5 through 7 tells us what happened next. It says, on the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do all of this? So let me just set this scene for you. Peter and John are pulled out of prison and are still not fighting and still not defending themselves. They weren't resisting because I think Jesus had made it pretty clear the night he was arrested. I don't know if you remember when, when Peter tried to pull out his sword and massacre anyone who came at them. Well, Jesus made it clear that that was not the way to go. So we know Peter and John weren't protesting. They, they remained silent. They are then put in the center of a circle of the Sanhedrin. There were a lot of religious leaders present here, 71 to be exact. So imagine how intimidating this must have been. And remember, Jesus stood before these same men who held official power and could have you put to death in an instant. I mean, this was Jerusalem's uh, VIPs. And here were Peter and John, leaders of this offensive and threatening new religion, standing in the center, center ready to be interrogated. So at this point, you would think Peter and John would be learning that preaching Jesus was getting them in trouble. They'd been arrested and thrown into prison. They stood in front of the very leaders who had Jesus crucified. Uh, things were not in their favor. This is the time they could just put their efforts to rest and just go back to being fishermen. And I think most of us might have just abandoned the mission at this point. But what happens next? Well, the Sanhedrin asked them, by what power and what name did you do this miracle? And how does Peter respond? Well, God opens a door and Peter boldly walks through it like a boss. If you go to Acts 4, 8 through 12, it says, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and, and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is no salvation in no one else, 
For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I just want to point out the example that Peter and John gave us here. They submitted to the persecution. They didn't fight it. They knew it came with the territory. Jesus had prepared them for it. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. And that is where they drew their strength from. That is where they drew their words from. They were humble, broken, selfless, and weak. Yet they were fully following the Holy Spirit to guide them. He gave them power and he gave them wisdom. And in this, they boldly proclaim the gospel. And if you think about this, it's a little counterintuitive because their lives were on the line. Peter could have easily just said he was sorry and made excuses and compromised, but he didn't. He told these men the same thing he told the crowds in Acts 2 and 3. You killed the Son of God and God raised them up and we're witnesses. Repent and believe or you'll spend eternity in hell. Wow. I mean, how bold is this? How easily Peter could have done what most do in our culture and, and protected his reputation and his future and his life. How easily he could have made every excuse and promise he would never do it again. But no, he straight up called them out for murdering the son of God right to their faces. Guys, this is boldness. And this was the way Peter did it. Acts 2, you killed him. Acts 3, you killed him. Acts 4, you killed him. Acts 5, you killed him. And all the apostles and the followers of Christ followed suit. In the face of the most severe persecution, there was no backing down and no watering down the message. Why? As I mentioned already, sinners need to know they're sinners. And they need to be indicted for their crimes. They must be wounded by the gospel. They must hear the bad news. They must repent if they are to be saved. And this is where Peter goes with the council. But notice something. Peter offers them salvation, even these evil men. Yes, salvation is available to all, but it comes through one, Jesus. So to top it off, Peter not only calls them out for murdering Jesus, but he shares the exclusivity of the gospel. P Peter quotes Psalm 118.22, You've rejected the stone, who is the cornerstone? But there is salvation, it is in Christ alone. And we have to admit that sometimes that is hard to say, particularly in, in a religious environment. And we really can't speed past what's happening here. Well, let me just give you context to help you understand how bold and courageous Peter is in this moment. Imagine walking to, into a house of false religion, like, like maybe a Jewish temple or a mosque, okay, in front of thousands of people. Because imagine walking into a mosque in front of thousands of Muslims, devout Muslims, and telling them, you've rejected the only Savior, you must repent, there's salvation only in Jesus. I mean, could you do that? Could you announce that in front of thousands of unbelievers who would call for your head? Because this is exactly what Peter did. He was in the most sacred building in the world with the most religious people in the world, indicting them for murdering the son of God who is now alive and then demanding their repentance, surrender to Christ, or they'll face judgment and go to hell forever. Guys, this is why I'm so burdened by what I see today in our culture. So many professing Christians and even leaders in the church softening up the gospel. You hear things like, well... You know, who am I to say who God's going to accept? I don't know. I mean, that's, that's really up to him, not me. I mean, who am I to judge? God's the judge. Guys, that, that very statement is heretical. Here it is in plain black and white. We, we do know what it says. Open the book and look at it. To soften this message is, is sorry, guys. It's weak. That is called compromising to make everyone happy. And it usually is motivated by the hunger for money and popularity. 
But on this day, Peter wasn't compromising, even in the face of death. Peter and John wouldn't budge. Peter made it clear to them, no gospel equals no salvation. No Christ equals no salvation. Apart from Jesus, you are condemned to death. You're condemned to hell, period. And how did the council respond to this stone cold truth? How did they respond to the fact that these two apostles were throwing around Old Testament verses like this? Beating the council at their own game? Well, first, Acts 4.13 tells us, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. They, 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 they recognized that these men had been with Jesus. Guys, this shakes the rulers in the Sanhedrin. It understands something. Peter and John, just like all Jews, had been raised on the Old Testament. They knew the content without knowing the context. They just spent 40 days with the teacher of all teachers after his resurrection who explained and unlocked it all for them. Factor in the Holy Spirit, who is the internal resident truth teacher, coming to dwell in them. They are now profoundly educated in the understanding of the scriptures. And so they speak with confidence and it shakes these men, all 71 to their core. The council is astounded that these uneducated Galilean backwoods redneck fishermen are saying what they're saying. That they recognize they had been with Jesus and they were now like Jesus. And here's what this is saying to us. These men knew that Peter and John were untrained and they were amazed at what being with Jesus had done for them. We must understand that a changed life convinces people of Christ's power. One of our greatest testimonies is the difference others see in our lives and attitudes since we've come to Christ. The council, they saw boldness. They saw authority. They saw fearlessness. They know they had been with Jesus. And guess what? It caused a stir. Not to mention that this once lame man, let's not forget about him, from birth, lame since birth, standing in front of them, completely healed. And because of this, they were in no position to deny the miracle. They're in no position to question the apostles' understanding of the Old Testament. They, they could have repented and admitted that Christ was alive and was at work, but they didn't. They just remained hard-hearted. And, and, and instead of, uh, of, of, of repenting and, and, and being soft, to the gospel message, they, they just tried to figure out how they would deal with this problem that they had on their hands. They were completely baffled. And Acts 4.15 says they sent Peter and John out to discuss how to handle the situation. They didn't set them free. They just dismissed them to the outer out, out room to get them out of their sight. And Acts 4.16 says they conferred with one another saying, what shall we do with these men? For that, a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we can't deny it. Guys, I mean, just think about what they just said. What does this tell you about their unbelief? I mean, how, how stubborn is their unbelief? The council knows this miracle has taken place. It's notable. Everyone in the city knows that there's no law against healing people, that there didn't need to be a law against it because nobody could do it. There's no rule against doing a good deed. And what made it worse for the council was Peter and John were, were now very popular amongst the people. They had over 20,000 people who had joined this movement called the church, the way, outside surrounding them. And those 20,000 were against the council. So the council can't kill Peter and John or they're going to have a revolution on their hands. They don't want to release them to keep doing what they're doing because this is causing people to fall away from their power. They have to come up with a solution. And what they come up with is in Acts 4, 17 through 18. It says, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they call them in 
and charge them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So this is that moment. And every martyr in history has faced this moment where they are told to denounce Jesus. And this happens every day in our world. Denounce Jesus or die. And what does Peter say? What does John say? Okay, we won't speak his name anymore. We're sorry we caused the stir. Let us just go and we're going to comply. No, no guys, they, they didn't say anything like that. Acts 4, 19 through 20 says, But Peter and John answered them, Whether it's right in the sight of God to listen to you or ra rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot sp but speak of what we've seen and heard. In other words, Peter and John boldface tells them they will not stop talking about Jesus because God is their authority and they answer to him. Peter and John ha had to be commanded and threatened to shut up about Christ. Meanwhile, over here in America, Modern believers have to be commanded to speak up about Christ out of fear of being laughed at. Guys, we've come a long way from the fire this early church lived with, and we must find a way to get back to it. But on this day, it's clear. These religious leaders still hate and despise Jesus, and they can't get rid of him. So they warn and threaten them and let them go. They essentially ban preaching Jesus at this moment. So Peter and John left, and they returned to the other believers and told them what the council had said. The scriptures say they received the report and all believers lifted their voices together in prayer to God. And after that prayer, the meeting place they were at shook and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And guess what happens next? They preached the word of God with boldness. That they did exactly what the council told them not to do. They kept preaching. And when you turn to Acts 5.12, it says, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. Back in the temple, Peter and John were back at the very place they were told not to go. And they were healing and preaching. Guys, it's, it's like deja vu. It's a repeat of what we read in Acts 4. But it's, it's a different time. And just like last time, they meet opposition from the Sadducees. And this time, there was no talking. There was no, no threats. They just threw them into prison. And the scriptures say that that night, an angel of the Lord comes to them, opens the gates of the jail, and brought them out. And then the angel proceeds to tell them to run for their life. No, I'm just kidding. The angel did not tell them to run for their life. The, the, the angel said, go to the temple and preach. So the next day, the apostles go back again, defying the council, and they preach Jesus right in the middle of the temple. They're, of course, arrested again and confronted and asked why they keep preaching when they've been told not to. And Peter and John Tell them they will not comply with their demands, but will comply with God's because he's their authority. Peter then proceeds to tell the council that they murdered Jesus and he's alive and they need to repent. Okay, let's pause real quick and understand what's happening here. I mean, are you kidding me right now? How insanely bold are these men to stand in front of this council for the third time, threatened with death, saying these words? I mean, guys, this is hard to even fathom. It's almost unbelievable, but they did. They, they had no fear. They trusted God. They were submitted fully to Christ and were willing to die. And they preached with boldness in the face of death. And the high camp council was furious and decided to have them killed. But after a deep discussion, instead just had them flogged and ordered them to never again speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. And what did the apostles do? Well, Acts 5, 41 through 42 says, They left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They rejoiced in their suffering and they continued to preach every day. Guys, this is mind-blowing. 
that there are really no words to describe the level of boldness that the early church had. It's inspiring. And guess what? It is our example. Look at how they responded to persecution. So how do we respond in the face of persecution? We continue in our faith no matter what. We keep preaching the good news. Guys, we will suffer many hardships. We will suffer, suffer trials. We will suffer persecution for Jesus. But in order to enter the kingdom, this has to happen. It looks different for all of us. But one thing is certain. We will suffer. And Peter and John give us the example. We must keep preaching the gospel. When they come against you, preach the gospel. When they lie about you, preach the gospel. When they threaten you, preach the gospel. When they, when they attack your character, preach the gospel. And here's the truth. The cost of being God's spokesperson is as high as the privilege is sweet. We tend to forget that heaven is a minority destination. Remember, the way is narrow and the few are those who find their way to life according to Matthew 7. Accordingly, when we speak the word of God faithfully, we will find ourselves somewhat lonely. Speaking God's word compels us to say unsettling things, even to people we love. Being God's mouthpiece requires that we speak without prejudice, even toward family and friends. Remember that God's prophets lived lonely, misunderstood lives. God requires that his spokespersons share in his passions. And so ask yourself, do you share in God's burden for the lostness you see? This is both a blessing and a burden, my friends. It's a privilege to feel what God feels. He does not want us to be mechanical messengers. He wants us to share in the emotion of his message. God's mouthpieces do not tend to be composed and refined. They tend to be ragged and raw and completely undone by the message they give. Imperfect, unfiltered, flawed, but burdened for every human on this planet who doesn't know the love of Christ. We must come to that point if we will ever be truly effective. My friends, this is all for this week's episode of Straight Talk with Celine. Come back next week as we continue our journey through the book of Acts. Next week, we meet the man named Saul who made it his mission to destroy and wipe the church off the planet. The persecution, guys, it, it turns up. And when it turns up, what happens? I mean, does the church shrivel and die? Or does it explode even more? We'll come back next week as we find out. But before I go, I want to continually be reminding you to ask yourselves this question. What does this story of God mean to us and what does it mean for us? Who are we in light of God? Friends, if you have surrendered your life to Jesus and are following him, the Bible proclaims the following. You are chosen. You are a royal priest. You are part of a holy nation. You are God's very own possession. You have been called out of darkness, called out of the grave, out of, away from death and into his wonderful light, into a life. And now you are to be a bold proclaimer of his glory. Guys, do you know this? Are you living this? If you are, great. If you're not, it's okay. Guys, most are not. But come back next week because the point of this podcast is to walk this journey together. I'm currently learning myself, but together, guys, we will learn our identity in Christ and we will step into it. My friends, thank you for joining me on this episode of Straight Talk with Celine. I hope our time together has helped you take a small step towards living out the fullness of who you've been called to be. If this episode encouraged and edified you, please take a moment and think of that person that needs to hear this and do me a favor and share it. Jesus has called us to be ambassadors. Let us never forget that the mission is to know Jesus and to make him known. I love you all with the love of Christ. 
Until next time, take care.